DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. I am delighted to be joined by Father Sean Davidson, who is a member of the Missionaries of the Most Holy Eucharist. He spent two years serving at the magnificent Basilica of St. Mary Magdalene in Provence, France. He is currently serving at the Eucharistic Retreat Center in the Seminary at the Immaculate Conception in Long Island. With Father Sean Davidson, we go inside the pages of St. Mary Magdalene, Prophetess of Eucharistic Love, published by Ignatius Press. Father Davidson, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. I just love St. Mary Magdalene, the prophetess of Eucharistic love. This is an approach I, I don't think that has ever been taken in relation to this beautiful saint. Thank you so much for bringing this forward. Well, thank you for appreciating it. <laughs> How did you come to know Mary Magdalene? Um, I belong to a community called the Missionaries of the Most Holy Eucharist based in southeast France, the Diocese of Toulon, Provence. Mm. And uh, I moved to France a few years ago to join this community. And after having lived there for a few years, our bishop, uh, Dominique Ray, he entrusted us with the basilica, the ancient basilica of St. Mary Magdalene, where her relics are said to have been kept uh, since the first century. And so I really discovered her there. I didn't know all that much about her, but I discovered this Provencal tradition, and then that led me to... uh, a new kind of meditation on the the Gospels, and really it set my heart on fire. So I decided eventually to to put something on paper about all of that. Well, there's so much to discuss, not only about her, but of how you approached her in this work that you've given us. I think it's more than just a, a biography of her life. It's so much deeper. It's more of a biography of her soul. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's a that's a nice way to describe it. What I said to somebody recently was that a few years ago, some scientists tried to take her skull and then reconstruct from that skull what her face uh, would have looked like. And so I kind of did something similar with her soul. Just So there's a bit of my own imagination in there, but I'm trying to uh, work out what she may have uh, been like, what her heart might have been like. Uh, it's open to debate, of course, but um, that's what I. That's the way I, I went. To, I went about it. Well, one of the things that have come up recently in the life of the church, considering that the church has been contemplating Mary Magdalene for the last two thousand years, but it, so it's been fairly recently that you will hear an argument made that her story has been trisected in some ways. That who we thought Mary Magdalene was for so long, the tradition of the church that she was actually three different people that are being portrayed. But you Mm -hmm. kind of take that on in the conversation. Well, yeah, no, I would say that's probably the the most common opinion today, that the three different women who are, you know, appear in the scriptures and whom the tradition uh, spoke of as one woman are actually three different women. So that's probably the most common one uh, among biblical scholars today, especially in the English-speaking world. And because of the strong debate and the strong opposition to the traditional image of Mary Magdalene, in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, the Church changed her liturgy. So the liturgy used to give us the gospel of the woman weeping at Christ's feet for the Feast of Mary Magdalene, and that was around the moment of her conversion. So this woman who was described as a, as a sinner, 
uh, weeping at his feet. And then the first, uh, the opening prayer, the collect, was about Lazarus being raised from the dead, that particular Mary. Uh, the church removed that in the new liturgy. That it doesn't. It doesn't give us those texts anymore. Uh, as I said, because the biblical scholars were basically saying, "Look, we don't have enough evidence. Just looking at the scripture alone, you can't make that uh, assumption with absolute uh, certitude. You can't. You can't uh, say for sure." And so the church uh, does no no longer imposes that image of Mary Magdalene as the penitent upon us. There's been a certain amount of debate that has been opened up. Um, I'm more more influenced by the scripture scholars uh, in France. Uh, there are some prominent ones, especially André Feuillet uh, in the 1970s, another contemporary one called Renaud Sillier, who was a Dominican uh, exegete. He gave us a beautiful talk last summer, and they basically uh, insist that the traditional image of Mary Magdalene was in fact correct, and it's a perfectly uh, legitimate position to continue to hold when we look at the scripture. So there's a certain amount of debate uh, it's not a dogmatic question. It's not something that's ever going to be definitively defined by the Church. So uh, there's a room, I think, for different opinions uh, within the Church, and I happen to have been convinced by the traditional one. There also is quite a patristic tradition that is so much closer to the time, actually, but that the teachings, as you, you cite, of St. Augustine, for one. Mm. Well, the Eastern Fathers, so the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, seem to have been more inclined to make a distinction and show that show this as three different women, especially uh, Saint John Chrysostom, and then you know the Orthodox position has developed out of that. Having said that, I, I don't know why, but we always have Orthodox pilgrims coming to our shrine of Mary Magdalene to venerate her skull, and they're the most reverent, the most zealous of all of our of all of our pilgrims. So I, I don't think it's an absolutely universal rejection of that uh, of the tradition that is pre- present in the orthodox uh, church but as i said as you said saint augustine comes along and he links together the sinful woman in the gospel of luke who anoints christ's feet with mary of bethany who also anoints christ's feet a few days before the 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 passion of christ and i think that that identification is actually pretty strong to put those two together i think we can for me, I'm pretty much convinced that that's one person in both of those texts. I mean, it's such an unusual gesture to undo your hair in public. You know, that was forbidden mm-hmm. in Jewish culture. And then to anoint Christ's feet, uh, to dry them with her, with her hair. I mean, for me, it seems like that's the same personality that is acting. It's her own uh, devotion, her own particular expression of love for Christ. And it seems to me that that's that's one woman. So Augustine makes that distinction or that 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 link very strongly. There's a there was a book written about Mary Magdalene in, in the 1950s, which says that there has always been a puritanical prejudice. So a, pre, a, a prejudice, um, in other words, to not say that the virtuous Mary of Bethany could have once been a sinner. Mm-hmm. And Augustine, who knew how God pours out grace upon sinners, you know, he had been a sinner. He wrote a whole book about his past sins. He, he's the one who makes the strong distinction and says, no, Mary of Bethany can still be a beautiful, virtuous soul and have once had a conversion, have once had a, uh, been, been a sinner. So Augustine does that, and then Gregory the Great very strongly puts the three together. He puts together the, the sinful woman, Mary of Bethany, and Mary of Magdala, or as Luke says, Mary called 
the Magdalene, so her name is Mary, but she has this kind of nickname or name, uh, the Magdalene. And so Gregory says, we believe. So some people try to say, well, Gregory just imposed this upon the church, and out of that homily came this entire tradition. In Provence, they would uh, disagree with that, because the the sarcophagus in which Mary Magdalene is found is a 4th century uh, sarcophagus, and it was believed to have had on the upper part of the sarcophagus an image of Mary anointing Christ's feet uh, in the 4th century. Unfortunately, they broke away that part of the sarcophagus uh, as relics in the Middle Ages, so we don't have that proof, but they would insist that Gregory was actually not inventing uh, tradition, but that it was already there uh, to some degree within within the Church. Well, I think it's important to, to visit, you know, what St. Gregory the Great had to say about Mary Magdalene, but it, it, just to be clear, I, I, to jump back just a little bit, you had mentioned, you know, the, the woman who anointed Christ's feet, and then Mary of Bethany, and that you point out in the Gospel of John how there is just that that important note that he puts in there about how she had anointed him in the past. That mm. if you go back and you look at the scripture, you may miss it if you yes. go too quick. But it's uh-huh. important. Words matter, don't they? It's very important. And, and really, if you only had the synoptic gospels, so the first three gospels, you wouldn't be able to make uh, the link very clearly. It would be a little confusing. But if you with the Gospel of John, who's writing, you know, decades later, it seems that he is uh, making a very mysterious and kind of subtle link between the sinful woman and Mary of Bethany. Now, some scholars will say he's referring to the subsequent uh, anointing, but what this particular Dominican scholar who gave a talk last summer, Renaud Sillie, he says if you dig into these texts deeply enough, if you go into the Greek uh, origin, you will see that he is referring to the past event, and he's, he's referring to that event uh, from, from Luke, that is a well-known story. John, there's a connection between the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke, and that he is making that uh, distinction. But what Father C.E. pointed out was that it's so deep, it's so mysterious, why the Holy Spirit inspiring the Scriptures would have it so almost difficult uh, to find. He says you have to squeeze the texts like you would squeeze a lemon to mm-hmm. get the juice uh, out of the lemon, he says, and if you really squeeze them, especially the Gospel of John, chapter 11 and chapter 12, then you actually not only make a link between the two anointings, so I, I personally think that that link can be very easily made, mm-hmm. he actually says you can also make a, a link between then Mary of Bethany, whom you've identified as the once sinful woman, you can make a link between her and Mary of Magdala, uh, also if you look at those texts of uh, of John. So I don't know if you want me to explain that that particular link a little bit, or if you have other uh, questions. That scene where Martha is chastising Mary of Bethany that she should be helping. In that particular scene, it would make sense that maybe this is the sister who has returned, and look, she's not helping me out here. So is that fair to say, Father? Mm, I, I think so. I, I really do think so. And this morning, uh, I was meditating on uh, the Francis de Sales, and Francis de Sales has a beautiful homily on St. Mary Magdalene, It's uh, homily number 46. I don't know if it exists in English or not, but it's a very, very beautiful uh, text. And he says that you can uh, always find, he says, I don't recall ever having seen this great saint anywhere but at the feet of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So you'll find this woman always at his feet. Now, he was obviously making the the identification between the uh, the three texts, but he says you find her at his feet in her conversion in Luke 7, 
You find her at his feet in the Martha Mary text you just mentioned. You find her at his feet in the raising of Lazarus. She falls at his feet. You find her at his feet again in the second anointing in Bethany. You find her at his feet at the foot of the cross. And you find her at his feet again uh, in the resurrection text. So she's, this is her kind of her place. You know, she's, a, she's an adorer. But the link that Father C. makes between Mary of Bethany and Mary of Magdala, now I think this is a less uh, strong argument. I think there's a very strong argument between the, the two anointing texts. But he basically says that if... Uh, so, so Jesus says something very mysterious in the Gospel of John. When Mary anoints him, he says, leave her alone or let her alone to those who criticize her. Interestingly, he's always defending her. If you look at all of those texts, he mm-hmm. defends her. No, she's criticized, misunderstood. He comes to her defense. I don't think anybody in Scripture is as defended as this woman. But anyway, uh, C.E. says that Jesus says, let her keep it for the day of my burial. So that's the literal translation about this perfumed oil that she anoints him with. It's very expensive. He says, let her keep it for the day of my burial. And so C.E. says, Jesus gives her a right to anoint his body for burial. This is the woman chosen by heaven, Mary of Bethany, to anoint his body for burial. And so having read that, you would really expect to find her on Easter Sunday morning, two miles away in Jerusalem, ready to anoint his body for burial. But actually, you don't find this in Mary of Bethany anywhere. And scripture doesn't actually use the name Mary of Bethany. It just speaks about a Mary. Mm-hmm. But you do find a Mary called Ma- Mary of Magdala or Mary the Magdalene, mm-hmm. who is there, front and center. She is the uh, at the at the head of those uh, those people who go to anoint his body. She's the first one there, almost as though she has understood that she has the right, the sacred right and obligation to anoint his body uh, for burial. So I think that's a it's a pretty strong argument. Otherwise, there's no Mary of Bethany is nowhere to be seen uh, on Easter Sunday morning. Yeah, very interesting. To visit the conversation again on St. Gregory the Great, I think for some that struggle with his connections with Mary Magdalene, is he places her as a, her particular sin as a prostitute. Mm. Yeah, and that one is, uh, is a difficult one for people, for sure, yeah. I, I don't believe Augustine makes that connection. And Gregory the Great making that, in the scriptures, Mary Magdalene was healed of, of seven spirits, or seven demons. But mm-hmm. she, it, it doesn't say anywhere that she was a prostitute. And no. that, that kind of makes people's, at least in present-day sensibilities, stand back and go, no, no, wait a minute, what, what's happening there? For sure. Uh, and even if even if you do accept the tradition, you know, that she is the sinful woman who weeps at his feet, it doesn't say that she's a prostitute. It just mm-hmm. says she was a sinner, a woman in the city who was a sinner. So Gregory, you know, just draws out of that his, an idea that he has, you know, a, a woman who's known as a public sinner. Uh, he, that's that's the, the conjecture that he, he, puts, uh, he puts forward. Augustine, like you said, uh, doesn't, doesn't do that. And, you know, some of the fathers do say that the seven demons represent the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. So I think it's Jerome who says that. So there's a, there's a connection between, between sin, but not specifically any one sin. What's interesting is that Magdala is right beside uh, Tiberius, you know, the, the town that was built by Herod the, Herod, uh, the Tetrarch. Mm-hmm. And Herod 
had brought to that town a multitude of pagans because the Jews didn't want to live there because it had been built upon a, a cemetery. And so he brings all of these pagans from Greeks and Romans, and the moral culture of the place is kind of uh, it disintegrates a little bit. And so she may have been influenced by that pagan way of life to, to some degree if she lived in Magdala. One idea about her past life is that she was a member of King Herod or Herod's court, and so she may have participated in some of the you know the pagan rituals and the the life of that court, and that would be enough for the Jews to look down upon her as a, as a sinner. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A teaching of St. Paul from his second letter to the Corinthians. We are not discouraged. Rather, although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. For what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Inside the Pages. We're talking with Father Sean Davidson about his book, St. Mary Magdalene, Prophetess of Eucharistic Love. We've touched upon her life and how the church has perceived who her, her identity, but really her legacy is that, that great legacy of love, isn't it? For me, that's for sure. Like I said, I just came to the text, you know, without knowing much about Mary Magdalene, and I just said, well, maybe the tradition is true, so I'll meditate upon these texts. Uh, there are about six or seven important texts there that uh, that can all be put together. And uh, when I did that, I just found that this woman is radical in her love for Jesus. It's a love that is extraordinary. You know, Francis de Sales said in that homily that 
after Our Lady, you know, St. Joseph, I'm sure we could say too, nobody loves Christ like this woman. It's, it's an extravagant, uh, extraordinary kind of love that she has for him, which is expressed uh, through, through gestures, concrete gestures and signs. And so for me, if we want to love Jesus today, and especially when we come into his presence in the Eucharist, I think she's the teacher of love for us. What she really has is amazement for the person and the presence of Christ. Other people are kind of indifferent. The Pharisee is kind of indifferent. She has this awe, this absolute amazement. And I always think that Pope John Paul II, in his last encyclical, just before he, he died, he left us that kind of dying wish that we would have Eucharistic amazement. So amazement for the real presence of Jesus. And so for me, Mary is the one who can help us. We can bring those texts to adoration to, to before the Blessed Sacrament and just learn, enter into her love uh, for Christ. When you think of so many female saints of the Church, Father David, one pops in my head right away, St. Teresa of Avila, who, like so many others, had such a devotion to St. Mary Magdalene. They did, for sure, and it's always this traditional version of Mary Magdalene, you know, the penitent, uh, loving, uh, adoring Magdalene. Uh, St. Francis de Sales calls her the great perfumist, the, the mm -hmm. one who's chosen to uh, anoint Jesus. She's always got her perfume with her. But yeah, Teresa of Avila had a beautiful devotion to her. She speaks about her in relation to how to receive Holy Communion, imitating her, uh, her love for Christ. St. Gertrude the Great, you know, another great mystic, mm -hmm. she had a beautiful vision of Mary Magdalene, and she said, I saw her, uh, beautiful in heaven, adorned in precious stones and magnificent flowers. And she was given to understand that she had as many flowers adorning her now as she once had sins. And so the flowers represented, in some sense, the mercy of God, the goodness of God in forgiving her sins. And once that's done, it becomes an eternal glorification of the divine mercy. So she's a... Her, her, her having received mercy and forgiveness now is, a, is an eternal praise of the mercy of God. So it's very beautiful to think that even our sins, once we convert, once we repent, can in some sense glorify God because they manifest uh, the extent of his mercy. The greatest, I think, devotee of uh, Mary Magdalene among the female saints of the Middle Ages is St. Catherine of Siena. Mm -hmm. now, I think it's a, there's something really profound. I would encourage you to read her life by Raymond Capua, Blessed Raymond Capua. And, you know, he was her spiritual director. He knew her life so well. But he brings out many times this great devotion that she had to Mary Magdalene. But on, at one moment, uh, I think it's page 168 or 69, she has a vision in which Christ appears to her with Our Lady and with Mary Magdalene. And she, he, he gives her Mary Magdalene to be her mother. Mm. So Mary Magdalene becomes a second spiritual mother for her. But Raymond notices that in the same way that Mary Magdalene was said to have lived for a certain amount of time with no food, you know, at the end of her life she didn't eat earthly food. It says the angels would bring her heavenly food. Some artists show that as uh, the Eucharist, you know, the angels would bring her the Eucharist. Some of the mystics, like Catherine Emmerich, speak of are also uh, receiving the Eucharist. But in any case, he says from that moment on until the end of her life, Catherine never ate earthly food again. She had no hunger for earthly food, and all she hungered for was, uh, you know, the food of the Eucharist. She would cry out for this longing for, for the Eucharist. So there was some kind of mystical connection between Mary Magdalene and uh, Catherine of Siena, 
who was her, uh, Mary was her, her kind of spiritual mother, and I think she gave her this grace. She obtained for her this extraordinary grace that she lived towards the end of her life in deep contemplation and on the Eucharist alone. Well, it, what's so lovely, as I, I mentioned earlier, Father Davidson, about the book, St. Mary Magdalene, the Prophetess of Eucharistic Love, is that, it, I mean, for the overwhelming majority of the book, it is just an incredible, I'll, I'll use the term right out of Scripture, a pondering. You ponder on just the deep aspects of what her love for Christ is. Ultimately, that Thanksgiving, that Eucharistic, transformative type of grace that comes from a devotion to Christ. Yeah, well, that's like I said, that's what did it for me. I mean, people may not be convinced by exegetical arguments or arguments about the tradition. You know, some people write off any of the, the medieval traditions. But when you really meditate on the scriptures, you see, you know, deep meditation, that this looks like there's a vocation here. There's like a pattern here running through all of these texts. And for me, it's she's a prophetess. You know, if you look at uh, the text very deeply, she's a prophetess. But, in, you know, in the Old Testament, there were prophets by word, but there were also prophets by gesture. And she's actually a prophetess by gesture. A prophetess is one through whom God speaks. God can rebuke a sinner through a prophet, or he can reveal a future event through, through a prophet. But through her gestures, he rebukes the Pharisee in that first anointing, who kind of disrespected Christ, and he really speaks through her gestures, and Jesus himself interprets her gestures. But then in the second anointing, she prophesies the coming of the Passion, that his body will soon be uh, dead and, and buried. And it's through her gesture that Jesus interprets that this has been prophesied. So I think there's something deeply prophetic in this woman. She's also the prophetess of the Ascension. Jesus says to her, go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and your father. So she then speaks. She uses words as well as gestures to proclaim the, not only the resurrection, but also the ascension. And above all, she's the apostle to the apostles. Like Catherine of Siena was an apostle to the Pope himself, she's the apostle to the apostles who proclaims for the first time in human history the resurrection. And so she's the first uh, person to proclaim really the gospel, the good news, because the good news includes the resurrection. And so she's a, an extraordinary figure. Whether people accept the tradition or not, She's a most extraordinary uh, soul and, and saint for us to ponder. And when you think about it, even the, the saints that you mentioned, St. Catherine of Siena and, and Teresa of Avila, they had such incredible experiences in the contemplation, and literally at the foot of a crucifix. And their experience would be one that many would say would be the mystical awakening for them. But Mary Magdalene was actually there. She saw it all. She was the great witness. I would want to say every man and every woman, because John was so pure in many ways. And of course, the Blessed Mother immaculately conceived. And so, I mean, her experience was like no other. But Mary Magdalene is not unlike many many, many, many of us. Yeah, she, I mean, we're, in the world today, I think we're all kind of Mary Magdalene's. You know, the world mm -hmm. has fallen so far from, from Christ. But I think that, uh, yeah, that's what I regret the most about the loss of the tradition. And I really think it is disappearing in the English-speaking world today. So that's why I, I kind of wanted to give it one last voice before we close the case on this. You know, that's, that's how the Scripture scholar in France puts it. He says, don't close this file 
too quickly. Let's continue to debate this and, and discuss the tradition. Um, but yeah, because she gives us such hope. I mean, you can really concretely become a saint, no matter how much of a sinner you were in the past. And many uh, people have been drawn to that aspect. Uh, Blessed Charles de Foucault, who was a, a great sinner, used to come to her grotto uh, in, in, in Provence, had a great devotion to her precisely because she showed him that you can become a saint. And, and, and it's by means of love for Christ, very simply. Well, there'll be many out there who will be surprised that her relics would be in France. They're not aware of the story of the great devotion that the people of France have kind of kept alive just there in their homeland. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. I mean, I don't know how many people are aware of it today. In France, in Europe, it's probably more well known. Uh, but the tradition has it that her and a group of the first Christians were exiled from the Holy Land. I was actually just there last week. I just came back on Thursday, mm. and I was speaking to two priests who know the tradition very well, and they said it's, it's a known fact. It can, it can be proven that there were uh, exiles from the Holy Land who crossed the Mediterranean and who entered into around Marseille, which is a great uh, ancient port. And so th- this is what happened to them. They were exiled, and uh, they evangelized the region. France became the eldest daughter of the Church, and uh, she was eventually, uh, she spent the last few years of her life in contemplation in this grotto uh, in, in Provence. So it's a beautiful tradition. Uh, there was a papal bull in the 13th century which uh, confirmed this place as the authentic place of Mary Magdalene's relics. And so it has, a, it has been a, a place of continuous uh, devotion to her. You'd have to say that the witness to that tradition can be borne out by its fruits. The, the grace that has been received by the Universal Church over these many, many, many years. And you really do see it, especially in the land that has had so many struggles as not th- that portion of Europe, not just France, but that whole section of, of the continent. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Peter Julian Amard says that, uh, you know, the great Eucharistic saint, he says that Jesus loves the people of France with a similar love uh, to which he, with which he had for the family of Bethany. So they kind of brought their devotion to Christ to that land, and our Lord, that's why they received so many private revelations, so many appar- apparitions, all of the great uh, spiritualities that have come through that country. He says it's connected to the fact that the family of Bethany were there. So they brought their intimacy with Christ uh, to that land. And like you said, there are so many beautiful uh, fruits of this uh, tradition. Often people just come to the grotto or come to the place where her her relics are kept, uh, the basilica, and they just have a powerful experience. So that's what kind of confirms the tradition for them. There's one beautiful story of a man called Blessed John Joseph Latast, who was a a Dominican saint, and he went there and he had the privilege of kissing the skull. He had been very Mm -hmm. sick, and so the Dominicans allowed him to kiss Mary Magdalene's skull. And out of that experience, he founded a religious order called the Dominicans of Bethany, which would exist for women who had been in prison. So he would meet them in prison, they would have their conversions in prison, and then he would accept them into this order afterwards. So it shows the hope for for sinners that uh, Mary Magdalene gives. Do you miss being so close uh, in proximity to this place that had awakened such a, a great love and a devotion. I mean, now that you now you've had to go yourself across the big body of water across the Atlantic Ocean, and you're now settled in the United States, Father Davidson. I mean, do, do you miss it? 
my exile to America. Yes, it's not. It's not as. It's a pleasant enough exile here in America, I have to say. Mm. No, uh, I do. I do kind of miss it, to be honest. I was just speaking to a friend of mine yesterday about that. That uh, as I left the basilica, I, I had mass at her. Uh, I opened up the place where her skull is reserved on, on at 4 a.m. on Thursday morning before I left. I had mass there, and I had to kind of drag myself away for sure. It was very beautiful. Uh, to be there once again. But I go back every summer, thank God, because my community is based there. So I always spend a few weeks there in the summer. I'm usually there for her big feast day. We take her her relics out in procession through the town of St. Maximin. We have these uh, beautiful prayers and hymns and litanies of Mary Magdalene that are said. And so I'm normally there for that. So uh, it's good to be able to go back. Well, you've shared so much of not only an understanding of who she is, not just was, but who she is today and can be such a guide in our own spiritual life. It's so poignant in a very compelling way because you do speak of her as someone you know well today. You know her, don't you? I feel like I do kind of know her for for sure. I mean, I, I feel like she taught me how to really love Christ. And I received a few special graces, especially on her feast day a couple of years ago um, before the Blessed Sacrament and her relics, which were present I received a very powerful grace. So I do feel like I have received something from her, that she's certainly watching over me. And she's a great teacher of love, as we said, for Jesus. And, and not to be, not to care about what people think, but to care about what Jesus thinks. Because that's what she really does in the Scriptures. Everybody criticizes her in almost every text. She's criticized, but Jesus uh, defends her, and she just doesn't care about anything but what he thinks and how he's pleased. St. Catherine of Siena says in one of her letters that she was as self-conscious as a drunken woman. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen, I'm from Ireland, the west uh-huh. of Ireland, so I've seen, unfortunately, a few drunken women in my mm-hmm. day, but they don't care what anybody thinks. All they, you know, they just, uh, they care later on. But so she was making that analogy that she just doesn't care what anybody thinks. And I think that is the line we have to cross if we're going to become saints. We have to get to that point where we, don't care what, about what anybody thinks except Jesus. Well, what a wonderful spiritual mother to help guide us. I don't think you can do much better outside the Our Lady than St. Mary Magdalene. Yeah, the two of them are, are together, you know. There's a beautiful traditional text which is said to have been written in the ninth century by Blessed Rabanus Maurus, in which he says that after the Ascension, Mary Magdalene lived her supernal contemplation with the Blessed Virgin Mary for a few weeks, months, or years, I'm not sure how long, she shared in the mystical experiences of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and so she learned how to contemplate uh, from her. So I think Our Lady is the source of it all, the mediatrix of all graces, but Magdalene works along with her for sure. In our conversation, Father Davidson, it's been so lovely to be able to speak about her in such caring terms. And I almost am hesitant to bring this up, but you know, there has been an attempt, and I, I don't think it's necessarily new. I think maybe in the last several hundred years, though, it become more apparent where there are those who will take Mary Magdalene and try to put her in, in situations that we don't even want to think about. I mean, and I'm, I'll be more specific, that somehow that she was actually married to Jesus and had his child. And these these absurd cultural you know, trappings we want to put on her that is really, it does quite an injustice, doesn't it? For sure. I mean, I mean, it must be 
heaven must be truly outraged, you know, not just for the blasphemy of it, mm -hmm. but just because this beautiful saint is so disfigured, you know, and she's got such an important lesson uh, to teach us. So for sure, that, that's very sad. And, you know, the, the point I made in the book is that during the life of Christ, he had some serious enemies who hated him and who trawled through everything he ever said, everything he ever did, trying to dig up some dirt, trying to find something that they could use against him. It didn't even enter their head to accuse him of anything of that nature. It just wasn't even, it was unthinkable. His life was so immaculate, so perfect, so holy, and obviously so, you know, devoted to his mission that they didn't even think to, to do that. So if they didn't think to do that back then, then I think we would be very, very foolish to think in such terms today. So let's not even do that. Let's yeah. just, let's go before the Blessed Sacrament and just be, sit, if, if we were worthy enough, close to the feet of Christ as she did. And yeah, and like we said, Jesus is divine. You know, he came into this world to, to, to enact the marriage between divinity and humanity. And so there's, a, there's always a, a mystical union with Christ, but uh, nothing more than any of that than that, you know. Mm. Well, uh, Father Sean Davidson, this book is so wonderful, and I could sit and, and just listen to you and be drawn into that contemplation more and more. But unfortunately, our time is coming to a close. Any final thoughts? I think just uh, take those texts and just just give it a chance is what I would say. Go before the Blessed Sacrament, meditate on it, and learn from her that gift of Eucharistic amazement. Mm. What a wonderful companion to give to our children. I mean, to once again bring Mary Magdalene into our homes and our hearts and allow her to, to guide our children. I mean, look what she did with St. Catherine of Siena. Exactly. That's the thing. When someone is devoted to her, and especially into that, to that traditional image, she sets your heart on fire. That's mm -hmm. what she does. She sets you on fire with love for Christ. Beautiful. Father, thank you so much. God bless you, Chris. Lovely to speak to you. With Father Sean Davidson, we've gone inside the pages of St. Mary Magdalene, Prophetess of Eucharistic Love. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. <laughs>